Well, good morning again. So glad that you are here with us. Um, even a couple of 49ers that are in our midst, um, we, are, we are somewhat grateful for, for you. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. This morning we're continuing our sermon series um, from the book of Nehemiah. If you recall, um, we're not going through all of Nehemiah. In fact, we just have two more messages. We have this morning, and then we have next Sunday's message, and then we will transition into our Vision 2020 sermon series. But for those of you who are visiting with us um, this morning, or those that um, haven't been with us since we started this series, let me kind of give you a little bit of background information. Um, Nehemiah was written by its namesake, Nehemiah. Um, he, he was a Jew who lived in Babylon. About 150 years before we are introduced to him, the Jews from Judah had been taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was a worthless man. He was a, he was, um, a ruthless man as well. He destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, burned the gates, and destroyed the temple. And, and so he took with him the Jews back to Babylon and turned them into slaves. And they would remain slaves for about 70 years. And after 70 years, um, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. Then King Cyrus rose to leadership, and he issued a decree allowing remnants of the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And soon after they returned to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple. But they did not rebuild the walls or the gates, which made the, the people of God vulnerable before the nations of the world. And if the people were vulnerable, and if they looked weak, it also made their God, Yahweh God, look weak as well. And so, after about 150 years, Nehemiah shows up, into the, comes into the story. And, and Nehemiah gets word from, from brethren from Jerusalem that had traveled to Babylon and shared with him the condition of Jerusalem, that the walls were still in ruin and the gates were still destroyed. And when Nehemiah gets word of this, he's a broken man. He hits the ground, he begins to pray, he begins to fast, he begins to repent of his sins, and he repents of the sins of the nation as well. And then he resolves that he's going to become a difference maker. After about four months of prayer, Nehemiah is given an opportunity to share with the king the vision that God had given him for Jerusalem. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. If you don't know what a cupbearer is, what he did basically is he would always take the first drink of the king's wine to make sure that it had not been poisoned a job that none of us in this room would want. But Nehemiah somehow became the cupbearer, which meant he had a very special relationship with the king. And when Nehemiah shared his vision with the king, the king allowed Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates. And not only did he get to go back, but he also took a military entourage with him, and he was able to go and collect all the supplies needed for rebuilding those walls. And that's brings us basically to where we're at now in Nehemiah chapter 4. So that is about four or five weeks worth of sermons all condensed down real, real short. Those are the cliff notes. So in Nehemiah chapter 4, what we're going to see this morning is this. 
we're going to see God's people deal with opposition. Our message point is Satan despises a good work. You and I can count on this. Every good work will be opposed by the devil. Satan despises a good work, but guess what? God calls us unto a good work, doesn't he? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, last week we looked at the people. They began to do a good work, right? They began to rebuild those walls. And now this morning, in the midst of rebuilding those walls, notice our first point, it is this. Notice the people's enemies. In Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're just going to break up this chapter as we go point to point. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3, we read, Now when Sambalai heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, we are, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So Tobiah and Sambalai, we've already been introduced to them, but Sambalai, who he was, he was the governor of Samaria, which was to the north of Jerusalem. And when he begins to see this building take place, he becomes angry, and Scripture says he gets enraged. Why does he do that? Because that's what bullies do. Am I right? When a bully sees that others are coming to your defense, they get angry because they are losing their foothold of intimidation within your life. Here's why you and I can be, what you and I can be certain of. When something is of God, there will be many, many people that try to keep us from accomplishing what God has placed upon our hearts. You've experienced that probably before. And if you haven't experienced it yet, you will. Because the enemy does not like a good work, especially a work done in the name of Jesus Christ. So Sambalay and Tobia, they get angry and enraged. They also ridicule the Jews. Sambalay taunts the Jews. He laughs at them. He hurls insults at them. He is trying to knock them down is what he's trying to do. Someone has said that ridicule is the language of the devil. Since the beginning of time, Satan is trying, has been trying to destroy what God created and what God called good, right? If we go all the way back to creation's beginning, we see that happen in the Garden of Eden. We see that happen throughout human history. The reason the world was destroyed by a flood was because the people of God, who were God's creation, turned their back against God. Think about all the passages of Scripture where we see the enemy hurl insults at God's people. Goliath tried to intimidate David when David showed up on the battlefield. The soldiers mocked Jesus. The crowds cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Peter, Paul, and the rest 
of the disciples and the apostles were ridiculed. They were beaten. Most of them lost their life for their stance in Jesus Christ. The enemy attacks. Most of the time that attack happens outside the doors of the church. But a lot of times that ridicule and attacking also happens within the church. And sometimes it happens from leadership within the church. I, this week I was talking to a really good friend of mine who, who pastors a church um, up north. And, and we were talking about, um, you know, what was going on in our churches. And he, you know, he just kind of laid it bare with me, all the things that are going on in his church. There is much opposition that is occurring from the leadership within his church. And he, he began to share with me, you know, we've had people getting saved. We've had people joining the church. We've had people baptized. And, and we are making disciples, yet there is leadership within the church that is attacking me. They're attacking the work that we are doing. And he was just deflated. You know why he was deflated? Because the enemy was attacking. And, and sometimes in life, you and I are going to be attacked by the enemy. And if we're not careful, we will allow that attacking to deflate, to, to deflate us as well. Make us feel defeated. Notice our next point. It is this. In response to his critics, Nehemiah, prays. In Nehemiah 4, 4 through 5, we read these words. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. You know, I love Nehemiah's response. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. For him, prayer was, was a first response, not a last, last resort. And all throughout this book, we have witnessed his faithfulness through prayer. Folks, when opposition comes, the Lord wants us to rely upon him. And the best way for us to rely upon God is to turn to him in prayer. You know, think back. Um, it... it you know, this last um, class that I took um, on, um, for my, my doctorate was a, a class on church revitalization. And I was writing a paper, and I didn't realize this at the time until I started doing some calculations. But it was five years ago, as of October the 1st, that we um, became autonomous again after our church strengthening time with First Baptist Wiley. But I don't know if you um, remember back to those days, but I remember once we went back to autonomy, we had to secure a $1.8 million loan to purchase these facilities. And if you remember, we prayed. And, 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 and many of us prayed like we have never prayed before. We needed a miracle. And, and, and so we started going to bank after bank after bank after bank, and all of them told us, you don't qualify for a loan. And I remember when we got about to the ninth hour, um, we found a bank that loaned us the money um, that we needed to secure funding. But all throughout those days, as a church, we prayed. And we didn't just pray a prayer, 
But we believed that the Lord had already given us these facilities up on this hill. And we prayed and we believed and God answered our prayer. We got the loan, and we have seen God do some amazing things over the past five years. I mean, think about this. Walls have not been rebuilt, but lives have been rebuilt. People have been saved. Many have joined this church. We have shared the gospel within our community. We have blessed our neighbors at block parties. We have invited hundreds onto our campus for Easter egg hunts, for fall festivals, for vacation Bible school, for Awanas, for you name it. We've invited people to come and join us um, here on this campus. We have gone on mission across our state, across our nation, and across our world, and we have seen the Lord do much here, but much more needs to be done. It's much more that we can do as a faith family. We need to pray like never before. We need to pray for people. We need to pray for disciples. We need to pray for disciple makers. We need to pray for the lost to get saved, and we need to pray for resources to do the work that God has set us apart to do. If we want to accomplish our God-given visions, then we must be people of prayer. Nehemiah was a man of prayer who led God's people to become a people of prayer. Notice our third point is this. Notice the people's resolve. In verse 6 we read, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. God answered Nehemiah's prayer by giving the people a mind to work. You know what the enemy seeks to do? He seeks to make us feel defeated. And if we feel defeated, guess what's going to happen? You and I aren't going to have a mind to work, are we? We're going to get scared of our enemy. We're going to run from our enemy. We're going to be defeated because of our enemy. He seeks to make us discouraged as well. You ever attempt to do something that seems so big that it appears impossible to do, especially when you take the the approach of looking at it, let's say from an elevation of 10,000 feet, you look down and you realize the work that has to be done and you're like, man, there's no way that we can do what we have been called to do. Um, Last weekend, Connor had a football game in Amarillo. And so on Friday, we loaded up the car and we began driving toward Amarillo. And right after we got out of the Metroplex, we began seeing billboard after billboard after billboard advertising a free 72-ounce steak at a a restaurant there called um, the Big Texan. Some of you have been there. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But these billboards are about like a Bucky sign. They're like every quarter of a mile, there's a sign advertising the 72-ounce steak. And, and, you know, I've been to this restaurant a couple of times, and I've always wanted to eat um, that 72-ounce that steak. But here's the deal. If you eat it, it's free. If you don't eat it, it costs $72, and that's why I have never eaten it. And, and the crazy thing is, you don't have to just eat, or you, you don't eat just the 72-ounce steak, but you eat all these other sides too. There's an appetizer of shrimp cocktail. There's a baked potato with all of the fixing. There's a salad that you have to eat. You have to eat a roll. You have to eat all of this stuff. And, you know, hundreds of people have done it. And you know how you accomplish something that big? One bite at a time, right? You know how the Israelites were able to rebuild those walls and those gates around Jerusalem? One brick at a time and one log at a time. Sambalay 
Toby and the other enemies were trying to get inside the heads of the Jews and trying to get them to feel defeated. God answered the prayer of Nehemiah, and the people had a mind to work. They were focused, and they were determined. In fact, at this point, they were halfway done, which meant they could see the finish line, but they also realized, hey, we still have half a wall to build. Notice next, we see here, the enemy's conspiracy. The enemy's conspiracy. In Nehemiah 4, 7 through 8, we read these words. But when Sambalai and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Those men also see the finish line was within sight. And if they did not act soon, then the people of God would once again be a real threat to them and the rest of the nations of the world. But notice what they did not do. They did not attack, did they? They just talked a good talk at this point. They just threatened to attack. You know, um, fear is a real thing, isn't it? You know, there are some things in this life that I absolutely fear and despise. Snakes, spiders, rats, and unleashed dogs are things that I do not like at all. Um, I've started running again about six weeks ago or so, and, and the other um, morning, um, I run about six o'clock in the morning, and there's been, I've seen coyotes in our neighborhood, and, um, and I know that frequently on our um, Facebook community page, people talk about seeing coyotes. And so that's a real fear of mine that I'm going to run into a coyote. Well, the other day, about six o'clock in the morning, I was out running. And when I run, I have my, my, my phone on and I've got my flashlight going and I'm, you know, just going down and, you know, it's not really much of a run. Okay. Let me go ahead and tell you that right now. It's, it's faster than a walk though. All right. So I'm running. I, I took a new neighborhood that I haven't run in before. And as I'm running, um, I'm going, going this direction, and my light's facing this way, all of a sudden, my light hits two eyes. And when my light hit those two eyes, I jumped about 10 feet into the air, okay? And when I came down um, from whatever stratosphere I was in, when I came back down, my light hit another dog's eyes as well. Okay, I was scared to death until I looked up and I saw two women who were with those two dogs and those two dogs released. But let me tell you, it scared me to death, okay? And those ladies were laughing at me and I think those dogs were laughing at me as well. That was fear, okay? To me, that is a good kind of fear. When you fear dogs and spiders and rats and all those other things, that's okay, Okay? But there's also a fear that isn't okay. That is a fear of fear, being fearful of our enemy's attacks. Satan is going to attack us. He's going to hurl those fiery darts our way. We're not to fear Satan. Okay? God's already given us victory over Satan when we became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in 2 Timothy 1.7 we read, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love, and self-control. There is a good kind of fear, okay? And there is a bad kind of fear. The enemy is trying to make us fearful, isn't he? He's trying to get into our head and terrify us. 
Notice how the people responded to their enemy here. In verse 9, we read, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Here is what we, hear, we see here. There was nothing that was going to stop the God-given vision the people had received. In response to the enemy's attack, the people pray. And not only did they pray, but they set up a watch guard 24-7 that were always watching the landscape to make sure that when that enemy got close, the people of God could respond appropriately. By praying and watching, it accomplished several things. One writer shared this. It sent a message to the people of God saying, we are committed to succeed because God is with us. It sent a message to the enemy saying, you will not succeed because God is at work and he will not be stopped. It sent a message to God saying, we trust in you and believe in you. Notice how the scripture instructs us to respond when the enemy lurks. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew 26, 41. He said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We know our heart is right, don't we? We know our heart is always prepared to respond in a right way. But the problem is our flesh is weak. And so we've got to make sure that our spirit is stronger than our flesh. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, and he was making reference to the church at Ephesus here. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There are going to be people that attack inside and outside this church. They're going to attack us, and we need to make sure that we're ready and prepared when that happens. Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You and all always need to be ready because Satan is always lurking and waiting for a way to penetrate the gaps in our lives. The enemy was trying to find gaps in the wall that they could sneak in and attack the Israelites. We need to also be aware that the enemy is always looking for gaps in our lines in our lives to sneak in to attack us and destroy us. Here's what we know. Even God's people get tired at times, right? How many of you have ever gotten tired? All of us have, right? How many of you have ever gotten so beaten down that, that you don't think that you can persevere? You know, I think that the, the God's people were on the verge of that. Notice how the, the people's perseverance. In Nehemiah chapter 4, 10 through 14, we read this. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near the, them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Then I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So the wall is halfway done. 
The people are tired. The enemy is lurking. You know what the difference is between a leader and a follower? Leaders have the ability within them to rally the troops, don't they? I think we've all heard um, stories of, 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 of how um, people have given motivational speeches, especially in sports. Teams behind the coach comes and he gives a motivational speech. The team returns out onto the field and, and, they, and they come back from what appears to be an impossible um, 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 chance of coming back. They come back. You know, um, many of you know this story, but some of you might not. On January 3rd, 1993, the Buffalo Bills played the Houston Oilers. Midway through the third quarter, the Bills were losing the game 35-3. to The Bills ended up winning that game in overtime 41-38. to That game is considered to be one of the greatest comebacks in NFL history. Following the, the game, Frank Reich, who was the backup quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, stood before the world, and he shared the lyrics from a song called In Christ Alone. And, and Frank Reich that week, um, spent much time in prayer. And he, he, he said that he listened to that song what, what appeared to be hundreds of times over the course of that week, making preparations for that big game. And before he um, entered into the locker room on game day, the Lord impressed upon, his, upon him to write down the lyrics for that song in Christ alone. Because he felt like the Lord wanted him to share that maybe with a teammate that day or maybe with the trainer or a fan or something like that. What Frank Wright didn't realize was this, that he was going to get to share that song, the lyrics to, the, you know, to the, everyone that was watching the Buffalo Bills that day, to those that watched ESPN. I mean, this saying went viral nationally. And people read this story and heard the story, and they were all moved by it. But the lyrics for that song are these, In Christ alone will I glory, though I, would, I could pride myself in battle won. For I have been blessed beyond measure, and by his strength alone I overcome. Oh, I could stop and count success like diamonds in my hand, but those trophies could not equal to the grace by which I stand. In Christ alone I place my trust, and I find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory, let it be said in me, my source of strength, my source of hope is Christ alone. In Christ alone will I glory, for only by his grace I am redeemed, and only his tender mercy could reach beyond my weakness to my need. Now I seek no greater honor than just to know him more and to count my gains but losses into the glory of my Lord. You know, this man not only rallied his team from, from uh, an insurmountable um, into a victory, but he also had the opportunity to testify for, before the entire known world that Christ was his Lord. And there's no telling how many lives accepted Christ because of the testimony of that quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. Nehemiah told the people in verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah helped to put the mind of God's people in right perspective. The challenge was great, but there was no reason for them to fear because God was on their side. First John 4.4, 4, we read these words, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. 
For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Do you believe that this morning? That he who is in you is greater than he that is in this world. Notice our final point this morning. It is this, the people's faithfulness. In verses 15 through 20, we read, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held their spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Now, I love the picture here. The the men with one hand, it's basically like they got a trowel in their hand and they're the tool in their hand and they're rebuilding. In the other hand, they have the weapon. And they are ready to fight. You know, there is a time when we need to wield a weapon, okay? But there's always a time that we need to kneel, yield and hold the sword of the Spirit of God in our hand, right? You know, the, in Ephesians chapter 6, God's Word is called the sword. We read in Ephesians six seventeen, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We are always to hold the sword in our hand, aren't we? We're to hold it in our hand and we are to have it in our heart so that we have the opportunity to share it when we have opportunities with those that don't know Jesus Christ. There is a real enemy outside the doors of this church and you and I are are tempted by him every single day. May you you and I always respond just as Nehemiah declared, our God will fight for us. We are not alone, are we? The Lord is with us, and he will guide us. And let us become people of prayer. Let us pray fervently. Let us pray big, audacious prayers. And let us believe that God is going to answer those prayers. Let us have the mind to work. Let's not be lazy Christians, but let us be Christians that work hard, not only to know Christ more, But may we work hard to make disciples who then can make disciples who then can make disciples. Let's not live with fear, but let us live with power, with love, and self-control. Let us be watchful because the enemy is always looking for a, a, a weep hole. He's always looking for a way in. Let us guard our eyes. Let us be careful what we watch. Let us be careful what we, the movies we watch and the television that we watch and the internet sites that we go to. Let us guard our ears and avoid gossip. Let us guard our mouths and avoid unwholesome talk. And let us remember that God will fight for us. And let's not fear the enemy, but resist the enemy. And Scripture promises that he will flee. In James 4, 7, we read, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Resist the devil, 
and he will flee. That is something that we don't just do once, but that's something that we must do over and over and over and over. The battle belongs to the Lord. The fight is his fight. We are just his soldiers that have the opportunity to participate in the fight. Say with me, the battle belongs to the Lord. You ready? The battle belongs to the Lord. One more time. The battle belongs to the Lord. It's his battle, but we're his soldiers, and we get to participate in that battle. So when the enemy comes a-knocking, let's take God's word and let's apply it well so that we can combat the enemy and his fiery darts. You may be here this morning, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you were to die today, you don't know where you would spend eternity. The Bible makes it very, very clear that we're going to spend eternity in one of two places, either heaven or hell. If we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then the Bible is clear we will spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. If we don't have a relationship with Jesus, the Bible is equally clear that we will spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell. And so this morning, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. And that is to first do this, repent of your sins. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us in this room are sinners that fell short of God's glory. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the consequences of those sin is death. It says the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is death, okay? But the second part of Romans 6.23 says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. In fact, in the English Standard Version that I preach from, it says the free gift of God. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to come and know him. Repent of your sins, cry out to Jesus, and, and ask him to be your Lord and your Savior. And the Bible says that if you do that, you will be saved. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you to come. You may be here this morning, and the Lord is leading you to make friendship your church home. We'd love for you to come and do that this morning. Um, during this time of invitation, you may need to just spend some time praying. Maybe you have allowed the enemy to seep into your life. Maybe there's one, one area in your life that you haven't fortified. And because of that, man, Satan is just attacking, 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 and attacking. And you need God to help you put a stone right there to prevent the enemy from coming in. You may need to pray about that this morning. I don't know what decision you need to make, but let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, and I want to invite you to respond to the Lord this morning. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, just to come together and to open up your word, Father. Thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his leadership. Thank you for his testimony. Father, we just pray now, Lord, that if there is someone in this place that has yet to receive you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today they'll make the greatest decisions they could ever make. That is to repent of their sins and to cry out to you to be Lord and Savior of their lives. Father, there may be some in this room this morning, Lord, that, that Father, they um, have received you as their Lord, but they have not followed up with that decision. They haven't made that decision public. Father, your word says that, that if we confess you before man, you'll confess us before the Father. There may be some in this room, Lord, that they, that they have asked you to be Lord and Savior of their life, but they've never shared that testimony with other people. 
And so, Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that needs to do that, that they'll respond to you. There may be some in this room that have accepted you as Lord and Savior of their life, but they haven't been baptized. And now is the time that they need to take that next step of obedience of following after you and get baptized. Father, there may be some in this room that just needs to come and join this church, Father, and we welcome them. Father, I don't know what decision needs to be made, but I know that you do. Father, move during this time of invitation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.